This episode of Branching Out is brought to you by Oak and Iron Craft Cocktail Bar and Made in America House Cleaning Services. Welcome to Branching Out, a podcast presented by the reporters and editors of the Acorn Newspapers, offering you a closer look at the news in your community. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Branching Out. It is Monday, September 20th. I am your host, Kyle Jory, editor of the Thousand Oaks Acorn. If I sound a little more upbeat, it's because I am. A, a lot of reasons I can think of right now, one being this relentless heat wave we've had to endure for what feels like the last couple months seems to be breaking finally, and maybe we're actually getting into a real fall, and we will not be approaching triple digits anymore. Of course, as I mentioned last week, uh, numbers are slightly improving on the COVID front, it seems, with each passing day and week now, which has got me a little more upbeat. Or it could be that the NFL season is back. Uh, if you know me at all, I'm a big fan of pro football, especially the Chicago Bears. And even though they did lose their first game, at least uh, they lost to the Rams, our favorite hometown team. But the reason I am most excited really is because of our special guests we have on today. Uh, we are going to be joined by Assembly member Jackie Irwin. I've known Jackie for going on probably 11 or 12 years when I first started working with the Thousand Oaks Acorn. At that point, Jackie was on the Thousand Oaks City Council. She served until 2014 when she ran for the Assembly and, of course, won. And now she is uh, in her fourth term in the California Assembly. So wanted to have her on today to give us uh, the latest on what's going on in the state, maybe some reaction to some of the latest big news coming out of Sacramento. And really, uh, one of the issues I wanted to touch on, Jackie chairs the Cybersecurity Task Force up in the state legislature. And that has been a topic that has been in the news a lot lately. And I wanted to have her on to kind of weigh in on some of these issues and maybe give us uh, from a uh, a state perspective, what, what can be done and what is being done uh, to protect us from these kind of cyber attacks. Today, I will be joined by the one and only John Losing, managing editor of the Acorn Newspapers. I want to take a minute to recognize our sponsors. That is Oak and Iron Craft Cocktail Bar in Thousand Oaks, right there on Thousand Oaks Boulevard, just down from Hampshire Road. If you've been listening to the podcast for any time now, then you already know Oak and Iron is the spot to go in the Canal Valley for an amazing craft cocktail. But the big news to share today is they have partnered with Lawless Brewing Company out of North Hollywood to offer their beers exclusively in Ventura County. What does that mean? If you want to have a Lawless beer, you either fight traffic and go down to North Hollywood to their tasting room, or you just pop by Oak and Iron. They have six taps serving all lawless beers, and beginning next month, you'll be able to take those beers to go. Can't go without mentioning Oak and Iron's Speakeasy Space. It is a private space downstairs from the regular bar. You can rent out for private events, birthday parties, whatever reason. Bring your friends. You get the space to yourself, your own bartender. I've been there. I've been to events. There's really nothing like it. If you want to learn more, go to www.oakandiron.com and click on their private event page. They have all the information there. Oakland Iron is open seven days a week starting at 5 p.m. and features a rotating seasonal menu of freshly made cocktails and now Lawless Brewing Beer. So please check them out. They are at 2967 East Thousand Oaks Boulevard and tell them Branching Out sent you. Well, thank you, Kyle. It's always an honor to be invited back to Branching Out and uh, to be honored to be a part of the Acorns uh, mission to bring local news to the listeners and readers and you know our state representatives give local residents a conduit to sacramento and uh the grassroots grassroots level they are the voice of the people and which is why we're honored today to have um state representative 
uh, State Assemblymember Jackie Irwin as our guest today on Branching Out. Jackie, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. As you know, uh, whenever we do the Community Attitude Survey, we know that the ACORN is the news source that most of the residents in Thousand Oaks go to. So um, well, you're I'm too glad kind. to be able to to chat with you for a few moments. We ought to point out that Assemblymember uh, Irwin's district covers much of Ventura County, including the ACORN communities of Camarillo, Moore Park, Thousand Oaks, and um, City of Westlake Village, so you do hit a portion of L.A. County, Westlake Village. Yes. That, yes. that, that tricky county line that, that's always so problematic. And uh, uh, let's not forget Oxnard and uh, Wainimi, too, even though it's not Acorn category, uh, <laughs> County, country. There we yeah. Go. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. And, and what it, I encourage you to get into politics to begin with. What was the motivation there several years ago? Well, I um, I was a systems engineer, mm-hmm. and um, and when my three kids were when my third child was born, I um, started volunteering, stayed at home, and got very involved with the community. At a certain point, uh, the um, local my uh, two sons were playing football, and I was recruited to be the president of the Thousand Oaks Titans. And the first thing I did was I went to Andy Fox, whose son played with my son, and I said, "Oh." my gosh these fields at the high schools are in horrible shape what can we do and he said well you've got to lobby us first the funds because they are mm-hmm. here so I got a, probably 50 children to speak uh, or high schoolers uh, middle schoolers about the conditions at the fields and the stands and um, we went to the city council meeting and asked for um, some help fixing up Thousand Oaks High School, Newbury Park, and Westlake. And at the end of the meeting, they were so convinced, uh, they gave uh, $2 million. And um, the school district put in, I think it was one and a half, those numbers are, you know, it was a long time ago. And we got the fields and the tracks and the stands mm-hmm. fixed at all three high schools. And Andy Fox said, boy, you're a community organizer and you should run for city council. Sign me up. <laughs> well, the biggest news this week, the uh, Governor Newsom recall. Are you surprised at how lopsided it was? Wasn't even close. Well, we are in an overwhelmingly uh, democratic state, and I think there certainly was some concern about um, turnout. I have to say, you know, anybody that's leading during a pandemic, you're going to make mistakes, and um, and a lot of people are affected by those mistakes. So there was certainly uh, a, a lot of anger in, in certain areas, but I think as we got closer and closer to the election, uh, Democrats um, really didn't want to change uh, drastically uh, direction, and I think that's mm-hmm. why you ended up seeing such a um, lopsided um outcome. And, you know, it, it really is going to be, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot that we need to look at uh, potentially making some tweaks to mm-hmm. the ability to um, reform the, the recall, maybe right. having, you know, a higher uh, requirement for the number of people that are signing petitions. But we know that Californians love the ability yeah. to uh, to be able to put an initiative or a recall on the ballot, and we certainly don't want to do anything with that. But the legislature will be looking because it certainly was a, a, a large amount of money, and um, he's very close to the end of um, his term. And um, so, um, you know, but it'll, it'll take some looking at. Yeah. Well, I think most of the left would agree that it, it was a colossal waste of time. But time. But in all fairness. Uh, if over 50% of the people want to recall the governor, that's certainly their inherent right, and that's democracy and process uh, in, in progress. 
it was really that second piece that was problematic. The fact that uh, a man or woman governor to be could be elected with just a plurality and uh, that didn't happen. But Larry Elder could have been the next governor with far fewer votes, millions less than the Newsom received on his uh, no on recall side. So going forward, uh, you alluded to a few things. What would what would you recommend specifically to make I, a change? Any, think, anything off the top? Um, I, there was a recent poll out and that one of the things was uh, increasing the threshold, but it was mm. also having a runoff uh, between the, the yeah. candidates that were left. And, and I think, you know, that did strike a lot of people as unfair that you would be looking at electing somebody with potentially, you know, 15 percent of the vote. Right. And with, you know, the governor getting 49 percent. So I think that's going to be a big discussion in the legislature. Anything that we do does have to go back on the ballot. And so um, it will be um, with consent of the people. Yeah. Would it be as a constitutional amendment to change? Uh, This is a hundred year old process. And so what what would would that be the uh, the route? Uh, yes, the the would have to go through the um, uh, legislature, two thirds mm-hmm. um, of the um, the uh, Senate and the uh, Assembly, and then it would have to go on the ballot, yeah. and then a, a plurality there. You talked about the signature threshold, and I think it was only twelve percent of the previous number of voters had to sign petitions. So you would raise that to maybe 25 30 percent at least make it harder for the recall applicants i think we need to we certainly need to have that discussion Mm -hmm. and what that level would be again you you but we have to go back to the people and we have to consent so um i think there's going to be a lot of discussion in the next year on um making this um you know in, in people's eyes a little bit more fair yeah, because I I think in 2003, it wasn't really an issue. Arnold Schwarzenegger wound up getting um, a lot more votes and uh, or, or less than 50 percent of the votes, but a lot more than Gray Davis. So it wasn't really an issue, but but it was this time. And I think it probably raised raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, the bills uh, that have gone to the governor's desk, you are responsible for half a dozen, as Kyle had mentioned. Uh, let's start. Let's start with two. That, that, that you weren't involved with as much, but they're really also making headlines. And number one is the housing bill, SB9, Senate Bill 9, um, allowing up to four units um, on a single family lot, two duplexes, two units each, in many areas of the state. So you own a home, one home on one lot, in your 44th district in, in those communities, what what exactly would the homeowner be permitted to do? And and is this really applicable to to the to the single family lots that we see uh, from Camarillo to, to Westlake Village. Oh, absolutely. Um, you would be able to subdivide uh, administratively, basically. Uh, nothing mm. would go in front of the planning commission. Nothing would go in front of the city council. And you could put up to four units mm. on uh, your lot. And, and my uh, biggest disagreement with it, and a, a lot of our local officials either didn't mm. vote for it, which we consider a soft no mm-hmm. or, or uh, voted no on it, is that these decisions should really be made at the at the local level. Uh, we don't know what the infrastructure is. We don't know what the traffic situation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know um, what the special ordinances are. I had mentioned uh, in the uh, in an interview with the Acorn about the um, 
about the oak tree ordinance. And we are re really looking at um, telling cities that your general plan doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So um, certainly uh, uh, there was a lot of um, concern from people, especially in suburban areas, but it had enough support from legislators that were in more urban areas that mm -hmm. see this as a solution to the housing problem. And, and you know, they're also the ones that are dealing with very large number of homeless folks, uh, a large number of people that say that uh, they can't afford housing, and this was seen uh, to them as a solution. But I, I really, you know, have tried for the most part, especially because I was on the city council for all those years, to um, encourage uh, local control. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's it, it's tough, and 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 let me let me read a quote here from Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, who says. You know, this bill is about, and I quote here, opening the door for more families to pursue their version of the California dream and whether that means a home for a parent to, to live in or for someone to buy their first house. Um, uh, but this is really problematic for many because SB9 is seen as maybe uh, turning neighborhoods into into rental city. And as you said, cities no longer have have the control uh, to say when and where. But, but in fairness and in reality, uh, the cities aren't allowing many of these developments. In Calabasas and Agoura Hills, nearly impossible to get a mixed-use uh, development uh, past planning commissions and city councils, a little bit easier in Thousand Oaks. So uh, can the cities stay? Well, they've lost the right now with SB9, but uh, what do they need to do to really step up their game? Well, every um, every. I think it's six years, the state puts out the uh, ARENA numbers, so the mm -hmm. Regional Housing Needs Assessment numbers, and uh, a lot of cities are planning for housing, but they don't ever build it. So we could certainly have cities uh, doing a better job of stepping up and, and um, figuring out where the housing should go in mm -hmm. their community. Uh, uh, I have mentioned many times that I was very disappointed when redevelopment ended because it really took away resources that cities had to build, especially low-income housing or workforce housing that might need subsidies. Uh, when I was on the city council, I think we spent between 20 and 30 million in 10 years to build um, housing for folks that work in the community and mm -hmm. should be able to live here. So there are, I think, other solutions that are not as... Um, as uh, blunt, I guess, an instrument yeah. as as this. And you know, I, I have to say, a few years ago, also we passed an, um, we passed a bill that allowed ADUs basically by right, and uh, it wasn't just the uh, communities of Thousand Oaks and Westlake and Camarillo that were unhappy with it. I spoke to government officials in Wyneme that said, I don't think the state understands how big our lots are and how much of an infringement an a ADU can be on the the neighbors and how difficult it is to um, deal with the infrastructure of extra people living there. So I, I really think a lot of these issues can be solved at the local level. But, you know, if the cities aren't doing it, you do need to step up as a state official and um, put requirements there and, and be more forceful mm -hmm. in, in making sure that cities uh, meet the needs. And, and again, as I mentioned at the beginning, making sure that cities actually build uh, the housing that they promised to build. Yeah. I think the estimate is about two thirds of the residential lots in the state um, are, are zoned single family. But I, there, were, there was a study from Cal Berkeley that said only about 6% uh, 
of those parcels would be eligible for this kind of development. So it does, it's not really the end of the world like a lot of people are making it out to be. I know there's a lot of single family lots in the state uh, governed by this new SB 10, but uh, really it's only a smaller percentage of that, that that would really work out for, is that correct? Uh, I don't know where that 6% number came from. I certainly do know that in communities that are more expensive, that it is going to take years before it pencils out yeah. to um, to uh, um, subdivide lots. And so I think that in lower uh, priced communities, you're going to see more quickly these um, subdivisions happening. Mm-hmm. But as far as 6%, I don't, I, I'm not sure exactly what, if, if it's 6% that they estimate or 6% that will uh, meet the requirements. So um, didn't look at it in, mm-hmm. um, look at the study in that detail. So you stood opposed to SB9. Uh, it, yes. it did pass. SB10 also passed. But that one, um, that one you uh, were in favor of, is that yes. correct? And and what is SB10 and why did you back that? Well, SB10 allows uh, cities to uh, basically upzone in certain areas, build higher density housing, and streamline some of the CEQA processes as long as the city council agrees to it. And again, I, I try to really um, stay within the mantra of uh, local control. So in a city like um, Thousand Oaks, if the city council does not want to use that tool, then they don't need to. Um, they don't need to use it. But other cities really see that this is a, a tool that will really help them um, through some of the roadblocks that we have, um, because you're streamlining the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, Jackie. First, great to see you. Uh, I'm thrilled you're on today. Uh, I know your a friend, State Senator Henry Stern. He he beat you on branching out by a couple months, but we won't blame that for <laughs> you. But we're just happy you're here. Um, I want to move on to some bills you yourself authored uh, during this legislative session. I think I heard there were actually six bills that got through the legislature. Now they head to the governor's desk to be signed or not signed. Can you talk about a couple of those that you're that you're most proud of and you think uh, are most significant and you're really hoping that the governor will get behind? Well, we've had, we had a bill on uh, online charitable giving, and right now uh, we see online charitable giving as the Wild West. And there was an example last year where uh, 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 people thought that they were donating to Black Lives Matter, and it was actually sort of a fake group that was putting that money in another direction. And we are really moving into that area, uh, there's just huge uh, upside for uh, charities if they're able to um, if they're able to get their uh, if they're able to get donations online. But we really wanted to put some regulations in place. It actually took four years to get this bill to the governor's desk. We had a stakeholder meeting uh, at the beginning of this session with 50 people, and I really have to commend everybody for continuing to push forward and find a solution that was helpful for everybody. And um, the the attorney general sponsored the bill, and this will just basically put regulations in place so that um, that we know that the money goes to the, you know, the money that somebody donates goes to the appropriate um, charity. The other thing, and it was based on a story in the LA Times, was uh, hospice fraud. So we have heard over the years, we've had relatives, all had relatives that have gone through hospice, and and it is a godsend Mm -hmm. for many families to be able to do that. But there has also been some players that are not um, actually looking out for the best interest of 
of the person that might be dying. And so uh, the big story in the LA Times, how there are certain areas, for instance, in the San Fernando Valley that have an extremely high number of hospices and they're not providing the services they should. So uh, we looked at that issue and the first thing that we thought that we should work on is making sure that there was transparency and taking away some of the um, incentives. So not giving gift cards to families if they sign up with one hospice or another. That's a issue that we'll continue to uh, work on because um, it's completely unacceptable. We need to make sure that 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 you have the 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 hospice that provides the appropriate amount of care. And when there's money involved, uh, we always have people that try to take advantage. So uh, we'll we'll be digging a little bit more deeply into um, into that. And then the last thing that uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, pushing for is a statewide mental health um, coordinator. So when you look at a lot of the issues that we're, that our community is facing, we always come back to mental health, whether it's homelessness, uh, whether it's gun violence, whether it's depression because of COVID. Um, we have a mental health crisis in, um, in this state. And what we're seeing is that the effort is really not coordinated at the state level. Counties, different counties are doing things different. So um, we're going to try to convince the uh, governor, even though th there is a big financial um, uh, price tag on it, that, um, that this would be something that would really um, coordinate across counties uh, mental health services. Okay. Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't mind bringing up a bill that, that didn't get to the governor's desk, and you and I have talked about it personally, and the ACORN has reported on it. You know, it's an emotionally charged type bill because it's it has to do with what happened at Borderline, the mass shooting here, and um, it is a bill dealing with the release of medical records to to the public that that currently stand as being publicly accessible. And I know this is I've talked to some of the family members that really strongly support this bill, and I know they've talked to you about it. Um, for people that aren't familiar, can you talk us a little bit about what it would do and, and maybe what it wouldn't do? Because I know there's been some confusion there. Well, right now, if you are uh, the child, um, a child, and you are murdered, your autopsy records are sealed. And that we, we were just making sure that um, these young adults that were um, killed in borderline would have um, that same sort of protection. And obviously, the news, a lot of the news associations were, um, you know, didn't uh, uh, didn't think that. Um, really thought that this infringed on what their duty is, which is to report on a crime to find find out if there were other uh, you know extenuating circumstances to co uncover crime, to uncover those type of things. So um, so it is really it is a it is a very difficult emotional issue and and I really pushed for it because when I talked to those families, it is, um, it's, it is really, you know, extremely devastating what they went through. Their lives have been completely public and just really wanted to be able to give them the ability because it was the parents that would have to, um, or a family member that would have to request that those autopsy records be sealed. And so the question is really, you know, how much does the public have a right to know? And this would be after the case was basically adjudicated. Uh, that we would be able to um, allow the parents to um, keep those uh, autopsy records um, uh, sealed. sealed. Is it possible that it will be 
come up again next year? Do we oh, certainly. Okay. We made it a two-year bill, so okay. uh, you'll be fighting that fight again. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a court case going on at the same time. And it, it's really, you want, you know, the very most personal details that didn't have anything to do uh, with the crime. You would really like that the parents would be able to, uh, to redact that to make sure that uh, that those records are sealed. And so um, there were, uh, you know, m mostly public sentiment, it, especially in Ventura County, uh, was very much in favor of um, the bill. But I certainly understand the other side because I know how important it is that we have a press that uncovers, um, that, it, that, you know, has the ability to uncover misdeeds and, and you know, Certainly, the press is what has you know the um, digging into that information. You know they've uncovered. I mean, they're basically protecting democracy. So um, I certainly understand the balance. But for me, uh, it, it was very important because these were my the, these were my constituents. It happened right here in in um, in Thousand Oaks. It's, it's, it's a tough one, and I think it's an issue where the fortunately the law now it allows bad actors to get their hands on that information too and I think that's mostly what the families are concerned about versus just say the local press which doesn't have an interest in 99% of what's in those records but right it, it's it's um, we've seen um, with borderline a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists uh, you know, I've gotten crazy letters at my home and a lot of the families have have really suffered and so you want to be able to um, protect them from that. You know, at the same time, you don't want the front page of the paper saying, oh, this person had this and this tattoo. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily something that's, uh, that, that helps the public in their understanding of what happened. Well, Jack, I originally had you on. Thanks so much, by the way, for taking all these other questions totally unplanned. Uh, I originally wanted to have you on to discuss the topic of cybersecurity. And that was because I remembered early on uh, when you when you were elected to the state legislature that you became part of the committee dedicated to cybersecurity and and really beating the drum. And I always thought, is this the really the most important issue? Uh, and this year has shown us into a really high degree how, what a threat our systems are to attacks. And the one that uh, that really struck me was, of course, the colonial pipeline in the Northeast. You know, hackers from from Russia basically able to shut down a complete pipeline, cut off you know oil and gas to millions of residents, including the capital. Um, can you talk to me? Uh, I would first just kind of start how you got involved in, in the uh, in the arena of cybersecurity and a little bit about your role and the, and the committee that you're on before. Oh, certainly. Yeah. So, um, you know, having a background in systems engineering was um, was certainly helpful. But what happened at one of my I was on the education budget committee, and uh, I was asking uh, one uh, the somebody that was on the student aid commission. So, what are you doing for cybersecurity? How much are you spending on cybersecurity? And she said, Well, we we had a company come in, and they said buy this box. And I asked, what does the box do? And, and uh, nobody really knew. And so I went to the speaker, and, uh, the, the, which at the time was Tony Atkins, and asked to have a select committee on cybersecurity. And we've had a number of hearings. At one of the hearings, we had the head of the Department of Technology and the number two person uh, talking about um, what they were doing on cybersecurity, and I asked, "How much do you spend on cybersecurity, and how mature is the security in these 120 different departments?" And and they weren't able to answer all the questions. It happened uh, that the next week they were both let go, and we 
um, got a brand new uh, head of Department of Technology, Amy Tong, and I've been working with her for the last five or so years, uh, passing bills that um, that have really. I think focus them and you know for instance one of the most I, I think one of the biggest the crucial bill was um, requiring every department to do a security assessment which is basically uh, uh, pin testing where they're, they're doing penetration testing to see where all your vulnerabilities are where all their vulnerabilities are and then starting to look at what departments are the most secure you know, which ones are, um, that have, have set up the right processes to protect the data, basically, of uh, the residents of California. So they really took it from that, and they make sure that every department does an assessment and does an audit. And what you can do that way is you can pr prioritize state spending when you have a centralized uh, Department of Technology, as opposed to having these one-off departments saying, hey, we're going to buy a box. You really need to know how sensitive the department is and uh, how, how sensitive the information is that different departments hold and um, and uh, uh, allocate your resources accordingly. So we're really seeing a huge different difference in the state and they've also set up a cybersecurity center uh, they have there's the four core departments that are working on cybersecurity they do information sharing and now they're really pulling in other local entities uh, you know uh, cities and state uh, entities into um, into the state cybersecurity center, and so I've I've seen a huge change. And you can say, yeah, why is that important? Well, we all have we all have had our identity stolen, and we have. Um, you know, some people have seen what's happening with the ransomware, what's happened with the ransomware attacks. Yeah, we, we had, mm -hmm. I should say, we had attacked, yeah. right? People think about big businesses, even the Acorn last year, and it was, it was devastating. Now, if I'm a small business owner, Jackie, and I, I'm hearing these headlines and, and I'm concerned about what I can do to protect my business, or I'm a, a larger-sized business, what, what kind of advice can you pass on to, to them to, to try to protect themselves in these kind of instances? Well, you know, a lot of businesses I talk to uh, are saying, oh my gosh, all my data was locked up and, and what do I do at this point? And really at that point, it's too late because there isn't a whole lot you can do except uh, mm. hope that you have some uh, you know, backup. But I, I would say the weakest link is always uh, the employees. And when we look at the numbers, it's still 80 to 85% of the time it's employees clicking on phishing emails. So uh, I would uh, make sure that you train your employees. There's a great company that uh, that puts out videos for free uh, called Ningio. Um, it's a gentleman that's right here uh, in um Sherwood that has a company and it goes through training videos for um, for employees. So the biggest thing is if you have uh, if everybody is using a separate an email account, make sure to put multi-factor authentication on it. So that means not only do you need to um, have a password, but you also have a code sent, let's say. Yep. Uh, and most of um, most of like uh, Microsoft and Gmail, they are very they they're very much focused on cybersecurity. So that would really uh, that would really help you. Uh, the other thing is passwords. You know, eventually we're not going to be using passwords. We're going to be using more biometrics. But it it is uh, no matter what audience I talk to. They, I will say, I bet I can figure out what your password is. And I will list the top 10 passwords, one, two, three, four, five. And, and there is always somebody that has one of those passwords. But the other thing that people do is they think, oh, I've got this really cool root password, you know, mama. 
And then I put two exclamation points, or I put an exclamation point and a, and a question mark, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's so smart, um, because everybody does it. And <laughs> the, your, your information, your password has already been hacked. No question. Mm -hmm. It is, there, there are many different, the, the Yahoo, ha there's, there's all sorts of hacks where all that information ends up on the dark web. So all the bad players already know what your root password is, and all they have to do is guess the last two or three um, items. Well, if you even do that, uh, many people just use the same password. So um, d don't think you're going to outsmart the bad guys. Have a password keeper or use your Google password keeper and start slowly going through and changing the passwords on all your devices. Uh, make sure that you um, don't lose public Wi-Fi. Don't use uh, public Wi-Fi unless you have a VPN. Uh, it's it is very easy for people to um, to uh, see all your traffic going back and forth. Make sure that your devices are all updated. And if you're a small business, that means make sure that you have patched your software, that you have an updated browser, um, that you have um, virus blockers, and do all those things. Uh, up front. The most important thing of all for ransomware is that you make multiple backup copies and make sure that at least one of those copies is not attached to the internet. So have a hard drive with three or four or five uh, um, backups, you know, keep it detached, remove it from your computer, and then maybe update it every two weeks so that you're only losing uh, two weeks of data. And if you don't have a good IT person, bring somebody in to look at your system ahead of time where they might do penetration testing. Uh, they, 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 they look at how vulnerable your system is and they'll tell you ways to patch it. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses worry about the cost, but they don't realize they're actually going to be saving money in the long run if they actually have one of these attacks hit. Oh, that's that's absolutely right, and and that is when I, I spoke to my friend Kimo over at the DA. He he said um, that's exactly it. When you know, once you're at the point where everything is encrypted, uh, there is really very little you can do. Now, what I I would do is uh, make sure to you, there's an FBI website, ic3.com. You can go and report your incident um, incident on that. And then you have to hire one of these uh, these companies that will help you um, uh, decrypt what has been in, encrypted. So it is um, it is very difficult for small businesses to deal with this threat. I think the number is that one out of five businesses that have been hacked end up um, going out of business because they are unable wow. to recover. One of the very big promising things that is coming up but isn't priced correctly yet, it, it will be soon, you know, down the road is cyber insurance. And what cyber insurance, what you ideally would like with cyber insurance is that um, they come in, look at your system, charge you accordingly, and then uh, be, so look at how vulnerable you are. And as long as you have all the right controls in place, they will come in if there's a cyber attack and, and help you, uh, uh, you know, get your system back mm -hmm. up and running. The one caveat I would say is that there are some of these cyber insurance companies that say, hey, why don't you just pay the ransom? We'll pay the ransom. And that is really encouraging bad behavior because there is also a one out of five chance, um, probably higher at this point, that even if you pay the ransom- You, you they, never get your, your your data back. Wow. Right. And and so, if, yeah. so we want this cyber insurance to mature to the point where it's affordable for small business, where they can bring somebody in upfront, look at your system, 
give you some ideas about mm -hmm. how to make sure that it is um, that you, you have removed most of the vulnerabilities, and then have where they put it, bring in a team if you are actually hacked. But these these um, bad players are getting more and more sophisticated. So it's always important to stay a few steps ahead. And, and as Chemo said this morning, I said, so have, do you have a solution yet to all these uh, systems being bricked? And he said, no, <laughs> it's, it, it's all up front. And, and the real problem, it's with anything preventative, it's very boring. Uh, nobody wants to invest that money up and uh, uh, up front. The state has not been investing upfront the way they should for the last number of years. It's starting now. And, and even the feds aren't because it's not, you know, the politicians say, hey, we want to show our new and shiny swimming pool. They don't want to say, uh, we want to invest in something that is preventative. But that is really the biggest way to stop these attacks. And doesn't it amaze you that this is, this is technical stuff. This is complicated, high-level stuff. That people who are educated, erudite, backgrounds in technology and IT will devote their time to go to the dark side, to be the bad guys, and and they and they have all these resources, and they will devote it to, to to, to stealing and thieving and and making life difficult for everybody. That that's what amazes me. These aren't just, you know, people off the street uh, robbing a Seven uh, Eleven. It's these are these are smart people who are who we're fighting against. Yeah, and and this is it's really, um, you know, it's 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 uh, you, you can make much more money. Uh, on the internet than you can mm. robbing a bank. So a lot of our crime has worked onto the, uh, has moved onto the internet. Yeah. And I would say right now, um, you're worried about ransomware. Uh, the biggest crime right now still is business email compromise. And that is when the bad guys are able to get into your email. And that's one of the reasons I say, make sure to do multi-factor authentication. If you have somebody in your email, they see everything you're doing. And they are able to, you know, one of the, the biggest stories that we're hearing in this, in, in this area, but it's happened all over, is um, when people are buying homes and um, they are going into escrow and then all of a sudden they get an email that says, hey, um, your, your wiring instructions have changed. They wire to a different bank and they lose their entire life savings. And that has happened here, and it's because somebody was able to break into an account because people only used passwords, they didn't use good passwords, and they didn't have two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication makes sure that you are, um, you, you can't get into that email account unless you are on an authorized device. Well, we always, we groan about it when we say, oh, we have to answer a text, but that's why they have it. I mean, right. that's that extra level of defense. So that's, yeah. that's great. That's really helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's not the most exciting subject. I, I, I talk about this all the time. I'm going to leave you my cybersecurity tips. And I can also tell your listeners that we had a hearing on this at Channel Islands in 2019 on what small businesses can do. And um, it is on my website, Cybersecurity for Small Businesses. Uh, the Sheriff's Department and the DA, they actually are very happy to, you know, get a group of business owners together and go through what they can do mm -hmm. to protect themselves. But I just have to stress, really, the solution is uh, being prepared up front. Yeah, was lack of cybersecurity to blame for the hacking at the state level on the EDD, the, uh, the unemployment funds and the COVID funds that were ripped off? Um, would, you, would you say cybersecurity was the uh, culprit there? The, there's, it certainly was, it was lack of um, processes. Uh, EDD mm -hmm. 
also has uh, software that was written probably in the 60s. Mm. And we have been critical of EDD for for years. I had called in, uh, you know, they, they were still mailing out uh, social security numbers, which is a complete no-no. Oh, you know, we, this was in 2018. And they said, well, it's going to be so difficult to update our software. And so um, there is there are a lot of issues uh, that could be uh, a lot of things that you can blame with the complete fiasco uh, at EDD. But I will say almost every state was dealing with um with this, you know, very high level of unemployment and trying to get the the checks out and and basically a, a, a you know a legacy system that didn't mm-hmm. function the way it should that already had problems and when you talk about updating the software, I mean something that is so massive it would take you know it, they're telling us it's going to take four or five years, yeah. so it's been a you know and and just to talk for a second about COVID, it, um, you know EDD. Um, has been the biggest issue that we've dealt with as a as a, um, um, a district office. I have five people that have been working full time for a year and a half on EDD cases. That's, That's all this they is, do. Yeah, this is not our jurisdiction. They have helped literally thousands of people get their checks mm. because the system was so completely uh, broken. And and you're you're talking about you know I I have young people working in my office that are talking to people that are suicidal. I mean, this has been completely devastating and we really, really dropped the ball on EDD and, and, uh, you know, going forward, uh, yeah, there's going to have to be a a much better leadership in that department and much more steady leadership because it was a complete fiasco. Well, on the pandemic, 18 months now and um, LA County Public Health has announced that bars and wineries now are going to require proof of vaccination or a proof of testing, and don't know if Ventura County is headed there yet. Uh, on, on the state level, uh, Governor Newsom has had his mandates. Are, are we headed in the right direction, do you think, with this thing? We, we hear cases are up, then we hear they're down, and then we see a restriction like that was put in by LA Public Health. Um, what, what's your prognosis for the next 18 months? Well, there were two bills that, that talked about uh, vaccine mandates, and I think mm-hmm. that they really didn't have enough time to, to cook through and, and figure out exactly what that means. Um, one of, uh, there have, have been a number of mandates at the healthcare level, uh, you know, for, for healthcare. Uh, private businesses are certainly able to mandate uh, vaccines. One of, the, one of the bills that we had, which was a Evan Lowe bill, would uh, uh, basically um, state that private businesses were allowed to mandate because uh, businesses are very concerned with liability if um, if they do mandate or be or having to um, go through mm-hmm. um, the court system it's um, I think we'll see where things end up in the next few months uh, it, it was interesting this morning I was talking to my doctor and um, I somebody else on the phone and they both had the same opinion which we've heard and and we're not sure about which is that you know if somebody's had covid and they don't want to get a vaccine what do you do in that case and that's a really difficult question because we don't have long-term studies that show definitively one way or another there are plenty of studies that show the vaccine is is uh, is uh, more efficient than the um, than the virus, but then you have a study that's come out of um, Israel that shows the opposite. So I really think we have to kind of let things settle down, see what happens over the 
see what happens over the next few months. And um, I, I don't think any of us can argue that if a private business owner or a private business wants to mandate vaccinations, mm-hmm. that they should be able to. But, I'll, you know, and what what the, the conversation I was having was with the doctor saying, well, if people don't want to, it, they shouldn't lose their, their livelihood as long as they're not affecting other people. And, and I was telling him the story that, you know, last week, uh, a member of my family had a potentially life-threatening illness up in Seattle, and she was not able to get a hospital bed. She was in the emergency room for 25 hours. And so um, that, at the, and, and why was the hospital full? It was full, filled with 95% unvaccinated people. So, yeah. so you know, I, I think it's it's a balance, and there's a lot of emotions on um, on both sides, and we're going to have to wade kind of carefully through this and see, you know, how do we protect individuals and how do we protect society? Well, well that buzzer you just heard, that's a new feature I'm branching out. <laughs> I'm tipping Kyle off that, that our time has run out because we do want to... Um, um, uh, keep things compact and tight, and we've covered a lot of ground, and there's so much more we could talk about. We could go on, and we do do appreciate you coming by, Jackie Irwin. Uh, before we go, though, um, re-election 2022, you're eligible for two more terms in the Assembly. Any plans to re-announce, to run again uh, in 2022? Where do you stand with that? Well, we are ha- we're going through redistricting right now, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of it depends on what the what the district looks like. Who we don't know who is going to be uh, maintaining uh, their lines and and who is not. So we need to look at that, and and uh, you know I'll make the decision when we get closer to understanding what this area would look like. Mm-hmm. Well, however the lines are drawn, and whichever the way the winds wind blows, we we do wish you the best of luck. And thank you for coming by, and um, we, we do hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Assembly Member Jackie Irwin, our guest today on Branching Out. If you're looking for professional house cleaners who deliver a consistent, quality job, look no further than Made in America House Cleaning Services. Made in America has a dependable and loyal staff of cleaners who are fully licensed, bonded, and insured to work in your homes, and they even pay workers' comp on all employees. And as I understand it, that's pretty rare. Made in America has been serving the greater Conejo Valley for over 30 years, and owner Paul Lopez has been a resident of Thousand Oaks since 1977. When you call Made in America, you know you're dealing with a professional company that is deeply rooted in the community it serves. Paul has been a member of the Kiwanis Club since 2015, and he loves giving back to the community and serving through the Meals on Wheels program. So when you support Made in America, you're supporting these programs. Uh, Made in America takes cleanliness seriously and adheres to a strict COVID protocol to keep customers and employees safe. For a free house cleaning estimate, call Paul today at 805-499-7259 or find them on the web at madeinamericaonline.com. That's Made in America, M-A-I-D. that was great getting to hear from Jackie always uh, great to get those kind of insights especially from the the state level sometimes at the acorn we are so much focused on our city councils our school boards are really hyper local government agencies but there's so much going on this state these days that affects local residents so great to have her on give us an update and hear from her 
I want to get out of here, but not before once again recognizing both of our sponsors, Made in America and Oak and Iron. Please, if you're enjoying the show and you want to keep us going, support them, call them, hire them, visit them. Uh, just let them know you're listening and that you appreciate that they are supporting the podcast and keeping us going. If you have any questions, any suggestions, of course, you can always reach us at our email. That is branching out at theacorn.com, or you can find us on Twitter at branching out pod. With that, I'm going to get out of here. This has been your host, Kyle Jory, editor of the Thousand Oaks Acorn. You can always find me on Twitter at Kyle B. Jory. That is going to do it for the show. Wishing everybody cool days ahead, and we will see you again next week. 